Thank you for joining us again on our online campus here at Evangel Temple. Uh, we are excited about what God's doing in the service that's upcoming. So we'd ask you that you prepare your heart, prepare your mind uh, for what's about to happen and how God's going to work in your life. If you'd like to tell us how God is working in your life, you can send us an email at connect at etag.tv or if you'd like to help financially support this ministry so that people can hear messages just like the one you're about to hear all around the world, uh, you can do so by going online to our website, etag.tv, and clicking on the Give link. Now get ready and prepare your heart for Jesus to speak to your life in this message. Thank you again, Pastor Gary. What a, a wonderful weekend we have had indeed. It all started out on, on Saturday evening with a prayer meeting, and I'll tell you, these altars were flooded. How many of you were here for that, that prayer meeting? And we, we just went after God, and, and it was evident to me from that moment that something amazing was going to happen. And yesterday, we saw some wonderful, wonderful miracles. I asked these guys that came with me. We were praying for the sick at the end, and, and so many things happened. I said, you need to send them the testimonies to me in an email. And I got, I got so many testimonies, I can't even go through all of them. But I'm sure that you will be hearing the things as they continue to come out in the days and the weeks to come. We serve a mighty God. Amen? Amen. Jesus is wonderful. And the gospel of Jesus Christ works. I love what Evangelist Bonke says, that the gospel is true greatness in anyone's mouth. So as we preach it, we preach something great and something eternal. And even if a child proclaims it, that child has a greater message than the most articulate politician in the world. We preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen, amen. Well, this morning, I really didn't know what to expect. To be honest, uh, a Monday morning church service is quite unique. I don't know that I've seen that since the, the old days when, when I lived in Pensacola during the Brownsville revival. But I think it's wonderful that so many of you have come out on a Monday morning. And I know that if you're here on a Monday morning, you must be hungry. You must be thirsty. You must be desiring something from the presence of God. And so the Holy Spirit, I believe, has given me a message for you this morning. He, he's given me something, a word to deliver, and it's a sober word, as opposed to all the hilarious other ones I've given. Uh, that was a joke, by the way. Um, no, it's a sober word, but I believe that it's a timely word. And I believe that the Lord is going to speak to many of you here in this place, and even some of you watching by way of the live webcast from around the world, it's not a coincidence that you've tuned in today. I believe this is a divine appointment, and the Lord is going to speak to you. So don't, uh, don't walk away from that computer. Don't change that, that channel, but keep watching. Let's just pray together. Father, I thank you for your presence. Thank you for the Holy Ghost. I thank you for the tangible sense of your glory that we can even sense lingering in this place. And Lord, I pray that it would increase. I pray that before we leave this place that we would be overcome and overwhelmed and transformed from glory to glory. Lord, we haven't just come to put in a religious duty or to check off a to-do list. Lord, we have come to meet with you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would also meet with us and let this be a defining moment in our lives, in our ministries. In the name of Jesus, I pray. And everybody said, amen. How many of you are in some form of ministry let me see your hands in some capacity okay this it's a great number of you and for those that didn't raise your hands I have news for you you are also in ministry whether you like it or not 
because you know in the way that the church of Jesus Christ was set up it was never designed that there would be a few full-time professional preachers that did the work of the ministry in fact in Ephesians 4 where it talks about the five-fold ministry gifts it specifically says that their main job is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry what a tragic lie the church has imbibed over the centuries that has convinced us that 99% of the body of Christ should just be paralyzed and turned into a bunch of spectators that show up to a preaching show on Sunday mornings. It was never intended to be that way. If the body of Christ were compared to a football team, those of us in full-time ministry would be the water boys. Our job is just to keep the team members refreshed and equipped and out there on the field playing with all of their might. You are the ones that are supposed to be doing the work of the ministry. So let me ask the question again. How many of you are in some form of ministry? Let me see your hands. That's a much better response. And for those that didn't raise your hands, somebody nudge them and tell them to wake up this morning. Praise the Lord. Um, before I begin to, to um, just share what the Lord has put on my heart, I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Esther chapter number four. And while you're turning there, I just want to give you a little bit of an update of what the Lord is doing in the world. You know, um, when, you, when you have a, a, a job and you, you have a family and you're very absorbed in your life and your needs, your concerns, it's very easy to forget that there is a big world outside of Jacksonville, outside of Florida, outside of the United States. I've discovered most Americans think that America is the center of the universe, but actually it's not. There is a big world out there, and God is doing amazing things. And I want you to understand something. We are living in a time in history that is unprecedented and unparalleled in the history of the world in terms of evangelism and gospel kingdom impact. There has never been a time like the time we're living in right now. It reminds me of what Jesus told his disciples. He said, he said generations of righteous men have longed to see the things that your eyes see, and they've longed to hear the things that your ears hear, but they didn't see them and they didn't hear them. But then Jesus said, blessed are your eyes, for they see, and blessed are your ears, for they hear. And of course, Jesus was talking about himself. He was the fulfillment of what generations of prophets and righteous men had prophesied. And now the disciples were living in, a, in the days of the fulfillment of those words. My friends, I want you to know that today we are also living in a time of great fulfillment. We are living in a season of history where more people are coming to Christ right now than have ever come to Christ in the history of the world. Now I know that when you watch the, the nightly newscast or you read the newspaper, it's full of bad news, isn't it? And there's a good reason for that. Bad news sells better than good news. But there is very, very good news. We have seen, I shared yesterday morning, I won't, I won't belabor it, but we have seen in the last 26 years more than 76 million people come to Christ in our ministry alone. That's not an estimation. That's not a guess. That's not evangelistically speaking as some people have put it. That is the number of people that have prayed with a counselor, they have filled out a decision card with their name and address, contact information, and they have been entered into the church follow-up system to become disciples. We have counted those cards by hand. 
76 million. That means that on average, more than 7,000 people per day for two decades have come to Christ. That is remarkable. Can you say amen? And I'm reminded of the first time that I, I was able to take a trip to Africa. Would you like to hear that? I, I've told this story so many times and in so many places. If you've heard it before, forgive me. It's a part of my story. It's part of the reason I'm standing before you today. When I, when I began working with Evangelist Bonke, I wasn't a preacher. I wasn't an evangelist. I was actually working in the warehouse. I was stocking shelves and sweeping floors, and I was literally doing the lowest job that you could possibly get in the ministry. If you would have come to the ministry and said, I want a job lower than Daniel Kalenda's, they would have said, it doesn't exist. And then he asked me, Evangelist Bonke asked me to begin traveling with him as an assistant. And so I did that. We traveled around the world together. And of course, I had seen the pictures of the Crusades for many years. How many of you know what I'm talking about, these Crusades? If you've seen the pictures or the videos, you know that it is literally epic. I remember we were sitting, um, we, we, Pastor Bonke and I were ministering on a, a cruise. And there was, you know, we were sitting at the table and one of the waiters came and he began to talk to us. And of course, this guy wasn't saved. He wasn't a believer. He didn't know anything about us. But he said, what do you guys do for a living? And so Evangelist Bonke pulled out his iPad and pulled up a, a video panning one of our crusade crowds where there was over a million people. And let me tell you something, a million people, it, you can't see the end of it in every direction. It looks like an ocean, literally like an ocean of humanity. In every direction, our, our platform looked like a raft floating on an ocean of people. And he played this video for this young guy, and when he saw it, he began to curse and, and all, used all kinds of expletives. And uh, he was overwhelmed. Pastor Bonke said, no, no, no. It is holy, but it's not the other words you said. <laughs> so this is, this is what we've been experiencing. Of course, I've, I'd seen the pictures. I'd seen the videos, but I'd never experienced it. And so now we went to Africa for the first time. Well, I went for the first time. We went to the nation of Nigeria. And we, we arrived in the main port city there of Lagos. And then we got onto another airplane and we flew to the capital of Abuja. And then we got into a bunch of vehicles that were uh, equipped with, you know, land roving gear. And we began to drive hour after hour after hour into the bush. I wondered where in the world they were taking me. And, you know, I, I, I always say that there's no such place as the middle of nowhere. Because for the people that live there, it's not nowhere. It's somewhere. But if there is such a place as the middle of nowhere, I found it. And it's this little place in the backwoods of Nigeria called Ogoja. Don't worry, most Nigerians have never heard of it. And when we pulled into the area, I didn't even know we had arrived. It, it didn't look like any sort of a populated place to me at all. But there was a group of elderly men that were standing there as we drove down that long, straight, dusty road. We pulled over to the side and got out, and they began to greet us. It was the elders of that, that area, of that region. And they, they welcomed us, and they began to thank Evangelist Bonke profusely for coming to their area. They said, even other Nigerian evangelists don't want to come to this place. And they said, we have to ask you to forgive us in advance, because they said, we've heard about your great gospel crusades in other parts of, of the continent, and they said, this will not be one of those big crusades. They said, even if everybody in the entire region were to come to the event, they said, you might have 100,000 people. Well, 
I come from a church of about 60, 70 people, so 100,000 didn't sound too bad, you know. I didn't know what to expect. And indeed, the first night of the crusade, by our standards, it was quite small. I think it was about 30,000. Evangelist Bonke began to preach, and I heard him preach such a clear, straight, unadulterated gospel message. I told him later, I said, when I heard him preach the gospel, I felt like I was hearing it for the first time, even though I had heard it all of my life. And then he began to pray for the sick, and miracles started to happen. I saw cripples getting out of wheelchairs, and people standing there saying they could see when they had just been blind a few moments earlier. And, and you know what happens when a man born blind goes back to the village where he was born, and the people discover that now he can see? I tell you what, the, the next day the whole village shows up at the crusade. And this is what was happening. Night after night, the crowd was sometimes doubling from one day to the next. And on that last night, I remember we were, we were driving up to the crusade ground. And as we approached, Evangelist Bonke began to tell me about an unpublished journal that they had discovered in a museum several years earlier by the pioneer missionary David Livingston. How many of you know who I'm talking about? David Livingston was, was uh, I think he was Scottish, great pioneer missionary to Africa. He, he, he really was an explorer and an adventurer and a missionary all in one. And what his, what his missionary journeys did is they opened the continent up for other missionaries to go. He was a pioneer in the true sense of the word. <clears throat> and they, Evangelist Bonke said in this unpublished journal, they read an entry there that fascinated them. David Livingston said, we don't see very many conversions. The people are not interested in our message. He said, there's very little fruit as a result of our labor. In fact, I read in another place, David Livingston said that on one of his missionary journeys, he only had been able to lead one African to the Lord, and he wasn't even sure about that one. And in this journal, he, he wrote, we, we aren't seeing very much fruit. We aren't seeing very many results. But then he wrote this. He said, many years from now, other missionaries will come, and they will have more light than we have. And when they preach, the lost will be converted in every meeting. And then he said these words. He said, when, when that day comes, may they not forget us, the watchmen of the night. I got out of the car and I walked up the steps leading up to that platform and when my view widened there before me, I saw a crowd, the likes of which I had never seen in my life, literally stretching to the horizon. When we got our, our, our count back that night from, from our team, which is a very scientific count by the way. You know, a lot of ministries, they take their numbers from the local police. Of course, the locals have never seen a crowd like that ever. They're just guessing. We have a very scientific way of, of counting the crowd. We've, we split the entire crowd, in the entire field into a grid that's been measured, and we count the density of the people per square meter. And so we have a very scientific and accurate count. When the number came back that night, over 400,000 people were there. Don't ask me where they came from. Don't ask me how they got there. All I know is that some of them walked for days. Many of them were sleeping on the ground under the stars at night. They were hungry. They hadn't come to hear a rock star or a pop star. They hadn't come to see a show with lasers and smoke and pyrotechnics. They came to hear the, the gospel of Jesus Christ preached with power. That's why they came. And as I was standing there looking out over this 
sea of humanity. I remembered something that one of the pastors had just told me the previous day. He said, here in West Africa, we have cemeteries dedicated to the missionaries who came generations ago. And he said, if you go visit the cemetery, you'll notice something. He said, you'll notice that on the tombstones, there are no names. Only numbers are written there. One will say five, one will say 13, one will say 20, just numbers on every stone. He said, those numbers are the number of days that the missionary lived after setting foot on the African soil. He said, in those days, it was so common for them to die of disease or from some other problem that even before the locals had a chance to learn their names, they would begin to count the days down. And if they didn't know the, the name, they would just put the number on the, on the stone. Begin to think about those, those men that went before. Those, those missionaries who said goodbye to their families. They said goodbye to the familiar places of their childhood. Knowing they would probably never return. Knowing they'd probably never eat the food they loved again. Knowing they'd probably never see the people that they loved again. Knowing that they would probably never revisit the familiar places of their childhood. But they got on a boat with a few earthly possessions. They said goodbye to everything. And they went to what was almost certainly a death sentence. But they did it because they considered the preaching of the gospel to be worth the ultimate price. The price of their very lives. And because of them, I was standing on that platform. And I suddenly realized something. What I was experiencing was not the result of clever publicity stunts or marketing schemes. I was walking down a trail that had been forged by the blood and sacrifice and tears of many generations of righteous men and women who longed to see and experience what I was seeing, but they didn't see it with their eyes and they didn't hear it with their ears. And suddenly I felt so blessed to be living in that moment and seeing what they dreamt and prayed and fasted and died for. Blessed are your eyes for they see. Blessed are your ears for they hear. And I heard the Holy Spirit speak to me in that moment on that platform. And he said, you dare not fail now in the season of harvest. My friend Leonard Ravenhill famously said, the opportunity of a lifetime must be seized during the lifetime of the opportunity. We are living right now in what I believe is the greatest opportunity of history. The news media and, and popular culture has convinced us that Christianity is going away, that God is with his back up against the wall, that secular humanism is going to prevail, that false religion is on the rise, that Islam is going to take over. My friend, don't you believe it? The kingdom of God is advancing in mighty power. And we are the generation that's living in these days. I'm going to talk about this a little bit more, but I, I want to play a short video for you. Would you like to see something from Africa? I wish that I could take you all there and let you see with your own eyes. But I'm going to do the next best thing. I'm going to bring Africa to you for a moment. And I, I told a story yesterday, a testimony. And I, I thought this morning when Pastor Gary asked me to share some things, I thought, you know what? I want to pull up that video on YouTube and play it for you. And this is the story of, of a Muslim man who ended up getting lost. He was traveling from one city to the next. He was there to make a train connection. He missed his connection and he wandered into the city. He was deaf, 
He was a Muslim. He wasn't looking for Jesus. And he ended up having an amazing encounter with God. This is going to bless your heart. Are you guys ready? Go ahead and play it. Sir, I heard that you were deaf in both ears for two years. Is that true? My name is Muhammad. I said, Rabbi Muhammad. I have a problem on my ears for almost two years. I want to speak. I don't understand. I can't hear very well. I said, I walk at missing missing, you know. So I have this problem for two years. So I'm not even trying to come here. I came from Tema, I came to Kandisi. By going to take a train, I make late. So I say, let me come to the Independence Club. You see, I came to Independence Club. I was sitting down here, just here. I did not even pray. I did not do anything. So I, I wake up. And I, I, I can hear, and the ears was telling me I can hear. People who know me can testify that I am very happy. I think Jesus is is a Jesus is 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 a God. He understands. Yeah, I I I. I I'm, I'm telling you, I am standing here. I can hear. I can be able to speak again. I will walk again for my work, and then I will feel very, very nice. I thank God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You know who has healed you? It's, it's, it's messenger of the Lord Almighty God. What's his name? Jesus. Jesus. And, and then I know that even the Quran tell me that if you are a Muslim and you do not believe in Jesus Christ, you are not a movement. You are not Muslim. So I, I believe that it's like that. Yeah. I thank all. I thank God. To, I can hear. I can hear. My ears. Is Hallelujah. Amen. Listen, my friends. I, I can feel it. I, my ears is good. I thank God. I thank your Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen. Listen, my friends. Nobody else opens the ears of the deaf. Only Jesus. He, he is not just a messenger. He is the son of the living God. He is the way and the truth and the life. Say amen. My wife is not watching this, but I present anybody who know me and see my face. My name is Muhammad, and I came from. Let me tell my wife that Jesus is the Son of God, and let me tell him that I am here. I am here. I can hear. I can hear. Isn't that awesome? I, I can't watch that without my eyes tearing up. How beautiful. You know, you notice that we, every time he said his last name, we blocked it out. Because literally that profession of faith could cost him his life. And yet he stood there in front of hundreds of thousands of people and proclaimed that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Amen, amen, amen. My friend, listen, we are living in the greatest days of harvest today. 
And it's not just something that's happening in Africa. It's happening around the world. I've been told by people that, you know, it's the Western world is post-modern and post-Christian. And I've been told that, that, for instance, in Germany, they said the Germans have rejected the gospel. But when we preached there, we saw the young people, pastor, jumping over seats, jumping over the pews, running to the altar. And Evangelist Balki said to me, Daniel, the Germans haven't rejected the gospel. They've never heard it. I believe that's the case here, right here in Jacksonville. You might think that everybody around you already knows the gospel, but I meet people every day who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a job we have to do. What a time we live in. You've turned in your Bibles with me already to the book of Esther, chapter 4. And of course, uh, the the most well-known passage in the book of Esther comes from verse 14. I'm sure all of you know it by heart. Esther's cousin and guardian Mordecai sent her a message that said, and who knows that you have come into the kingdom from, uh, for such a time as this. But of course, many exciting and uplifting sermons have been preached around this theme. And uh, I've, heard, I've heard lots of wonderful preaching. But the truth is that most of these sermons fail to actually hit the nail on the head because they miss the point of the passage. And you will often miss the point if you don't look at the context that something was written in. And what we're going to see here as we look at this passage is that Mordecai's words to Esther were not some feel-good inspirational message. They were actually a sobering and alarming ultimatum. And I want us to hear the words of that ultimatum today. Esther was a young Jewish woman. She was born into a broken family situation. She was a minority, a Jewess who had been captured and brought to a strange land. She was living in an oppressive society. I would say that if anyone could ever have said that the odds were stacked against them, it was Esther, right from the start. Then a miracle happened. God lifted Esther from the gutter and put her in the palace. It's a true rags to riches story. Esther became the queen of King Xerxes I of Persia, making her one of the most powerful women that has ever lived in the history of the world. And the book of Esther is full of irony. You know, you may not realize this, but Esther is the only book in the Bible that doesn't even mention God one time. And yet you can see the hand of God all throughout every event as though the hand of a master artist is weaving together all of these events into a beautiful tapestry that comes out in the end as one of the most amazing stories that you'll ever read. Just as Persia has unknowingly crowned a Jewish woman as queen, the king's visor, his main representative, a man named Haman, has begun to plot a diabolical plan to exterminate the Jewish race. What Haman doesn't realize is that Esther, the queen, is a Jew. And there is only one Jew in the land who is in a position to intervene on behalf of her people when it comes out that this plan is in action. But it seems that when Esther discovers that the plot, this plot is in the works, it seems as though she begins to hedge and hesitate. It seems to me when I read the story as though the pleasures 
of the palace had begun to intoxicate Esther. We see here in chapter 4 that she begins to struggle with which course of action to take. I think that as Esther looked around at the beautiful palace that was now her home, together with the luxuries and comforts and conveniences she had come to enjoy, it must have been difficult for her to imagine throwing it all away in some misguided attempt to be a heroine. She knew that by taking this matter to the king, she was risking everything she had. Her newfound power, her newfound comfort, her newfound wealth, even her very life was at risk if she were to approach the king with this problem. Now you might ask, why do I feel like I can speculate on what was going on in Esther's heart? It's number one because of what I read straight out of the text. I see in the context it's so clear. But number two, it's because of what I see unfolding every day in our world, especially here in the West. Our comforts and our conveniences have begun to intoxicate us. We're surrounded by pleasure. We're surrounded by wealth. Even if you, are, if you don't consider yourself a wealthy person, by world standards, the people in this room are among the top percentage of the most wealthy people in existence today. And we've got begun to enjoy it and we've, we've become lazy and we've become settled and we think that it's all about us. And in verse 14, or verse 13 and 14, Mordecai, sensing Esther's internal struggle, sent her this message. Listen to what he said. Listen to that scripture you know so well in context. Mordecai says, Esther, do not flatter yourself that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from somewhere else. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows but that you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this and for this very occasion. In other words, Mordecai said, Esther, don't flatter yourself. You're not in the palace because you're so beautiful or wonderful or special. You've been placed in the, in the position you are in because you are a strategic part of a divine purpose that is much bigger than you are. And Mordecai was saying, Esther, for you to stand up and speak out on behalf of your people is not some generous, extra, benevolent, courteous option that you have. It is the very reason you were put in the palace in the first place. It's the reason God put you there. And if you don't do what God put you there to do, he will remove you and he will replace you and he will find somebody else to do his work. I see this happening all the time. We're often afraid to do anything that would disturb our comfortable, pampered lives. And it's made us indifferent to a lost and dying world that needs to hear the gospel all around us. We are too absorbed in our own pleasures, in our, in our palaces, in our position. One man told me, I can't talk about Jesus at work because if I do, I'll lose my job. But my friend, did you ever think that maybe the reason you have your job in the first place is because God put you there to represent the kingdom of God? If you won't represent Jesus, maybe he'll just take that job away from you and give it to somebody else who is willing to speak in his name. I've seen people drop hundreds of dollars at expensive restaurants and 
at football games and at the shopping mall and on senseless entertainment. But then when the offering plate goes around in church, they begin to grumble and complain. All they ever do is ask for money in this church is what they say. My friend, listen to me. The money in your bank account isn't yours to begin with. God is not only your source of, of, of wealth. He is the one, the scripture says, that has given you the ability to make wealth. It's all his in the first place. The reason he gave it to you was so that you could be a blessing and a channel through which you would flow. If you're not going to be a good steward, don't be surprised if he takes it away from you and gives it to somebody else who will be faithful. Now, it's true. When God blesses you, you will also be blessed. When, when water flows through a pipe, the pipe also gets wet. But don't ever make the mistake of thinking that it's because you're so wonderful. It's because you're so special. My friend, listen, God doesn't love you any more than he loves the poorest beggar and the lowliest gutter. He doesn't love you any more than he loves the poorest African living in poverty. He doesn't love you any more than he loves the poorest orphan in a gutter in India. You are just the same. The reason that you're in the position you're in is because he has assigned you with a responsibility. And one day you will give an account for it. What are you doing with your resources? What are you doing with your time? What are you doing with your influence? What are you doing with your position? My friend, here is what I want to leave with you. If you won't do it, if you won't step up, if you won't be faithful, God will find somebody else who will. And this is a principle that goes through Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Esau was an example of this. He was the firstborn son in his father's family. He should have been the one to inherit the blessing and the name. And you know what happened? Because Esau despised his birthright. God took it away from him and ended up giving it to his younger brother Jacob, who became the heir of the promise. Today we say he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. Eli was the priest of Israel. His family was supposed to be the family that from generation to generation would have passed on the high priestly line. But the Bible says that Eli, Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they desecrated the temple. They committed sexual immorality in the temple. They stole from the sacrifices people had brought to offer to the Lord. They desecrated the house of God. They took it for granted. They figured that because they were born into a, a family of power and privilege that they were somehow special when they were actually nothing but spoiled brats. And what did God do? God ripped that calling away from Eli's family and passed it on to a little boy who was living there under their care named Samuel. And Samuel carried on that lineage instead. Saul, he was chosen to be the first king of Israel. Saul's family should have been the one that from generation to generation was sitting on the throne. The Messiah would have come from his line. But Saul disobeyed the Lord. So what did God do? Because of his disregard, God pulled that anointing away from Saul. And he gave it to a young shepherd boy named David. And today the lineage of the Messiah traces back to David, not to Saul. Catherine Kuhlman had undoubtedly one of the most influential ministries in the last century. She was a healing evangelist. She saw amazing, extraordinary miracles and inspired many people to follow in her footsteps. But Catherine always believed 
that she was not God's first choice. Did you know that? She believed that God had actually called someone else. She believed God had chosen a man to, to pay the price. She said, I believe God's first choice for this ministry was a man. His second choice too. But no man was willing to pay the price. I was just naive enough to say, Lord, take nothing and use it. And he's been doing that ever since. I could go on telling story after story. John the Baptist gave this sobering warning to the leader, Jewish leadership of his day. He knew that as God's chosen people, they had a sense of indispensability. They felt privileged. And this is what John told them in Matthew 3, 9. Do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you, from these stones, God is able to raise up children for Abraham. Mordecai told Esther, essentially, God's purposes will come to pass one way or another, with or without you. But then it became even more serious and severe. He said, if you keep silent at this time, not only will God find somebody else, but you and your father's house will perish. My friend, let me tell you something. The most dangerous place in the world to be is to be standing on the train track in the way of God's plans. Because his train, his purposes in the earth will not slow down to avoid running right over you. If you doubt this, just go talk to Pharaoh. My friend, either get on the train or get out of the way. I believe with all of my heart that those of you listening to me this morning, God has been speaking to you. He's been calling you. Maybe even now as I'm speaking, you're being reminded what God put you on this earth to do. My friend, time is short. We just, last weekend we were at Evangelist Steve Hill's funeral. He was 60 years old. He went to be with the Lord. And there at that funeral, when we heard the people talking about the impact he had made on their lives, it made me begin to think about the impact I'm making. I discovered one time, accidentally, I ran across an obituary in the newspaper for a man named Daniel Kalenda. It scared me. I felt like, like uh, you know, the, the Christmas carol, Ebenezer Scrooge looking at his own tombstone. And it made me begin to, begin to think, what will my obituary look like? What will be written on it? My friend, what if we lived this way? What if from the beginning we wrote out what we wanted our obituary to say and then we lived in such a way as to fulfill that goal? That's what I want to challenge you to do today. This is, a, this is a sober message, I know, but my friend, time is short. And every day that goes by is a day that we can't get back. It's time for us to get serious with God. It's time for us to seriously begin looking at what it is that we're living for, what it is that we're expending the energy and the time and the resource of our lives on and begin to live for God's kingdom. Would you stand with me this morning? I'm not going to give an altar call. What I am going to do is I'm going to ask everybody to bow your head and close your eyes. And I just want you to search your heart right now. We're living in the opportunity of a lifetime, the most precious, priceless moment in history, I believe. We're living in the days right before the coming of the Lord. We hear the stories of great men like Smith Wigglesworth and John G. Lake and Charles Finney and John Wesley, great mighty men of God that lived in the earth. 
What would they do if they were living in our time? How would they respond to the condition that our world is in and the need that's all around them every day? I don't know, but there's one thing I do know. John Wesley's gone. Charles Finney is gone. Steve Hill is gone. And now the eyes of the Lord are looking to and fro through the earth. Here's the good news, my friend. God, in his wisdom, has planned the world, and he knew that you would be the one living now. He knew you would be the one standing here, living in the year 2014. He knew that Charles Finney wouldn't be here. He knew that John Wesley wouldn't be here. He put you here, and he put things in your hand. You might not think you have much. But my friend, all Moses had was a stick. And yet God said, Moses, what is that in your hand? I ask you this morning, what is in your hand? Whatever it is, let me ask you a follow-up question. What are you doing with that to advance the kingdom of God? Because my friend, one day very, very soon, we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And we will give an account of the things done in the body. You're going to give an account for your finances. You're going to give an account for your time. You're going to give an account for your energy and your influence and your position. My friends, who knows but that you have come into the kingdom of God for such a moment as this one here this morning. This is what I'd like for us to do as, as our brother's leading us in a, a song of worship. Right where you stand, I want you to rededicate your heart to the Lord. Just rededicate your life to the Lord. Ask Him to give you grace. I love what it says in Hebrews 11. It says, laying down every weight and sin which so easily besets us. We hear a lot about the sins. But my friend, it's not just sins that beset us. There's also weights. What is the weight that's dragging you down? What is the weight that's holding you back? What is it that's causing you to not be able to fully surrender and fully follow and fully give your life and your heart to Jesus? It's time to lay that down. Whatever it is, whatever that means, no matter what price you have to pay, my friend, it's worth it for the kingdom of God. I told you about those men and women of other generations. They gave everything, including their very blood. There is no price too high for the kingdom of God. Father, as we stand here this morning, we lay our lives on your altar as a living sacrifice. Lord, whatever that thing is that's been weighing us down, holding us back, that ball and chain around our feet, we ask that you would help us, Lord, to cut it off this morning, to break it, to obliterate it, and to leave it behind. Lord, I pray that as we walk out of the doors of this building this morning, we would walk out with a renewed resolve that we will live for your glory and for your kingdom. No turning back in Jesus' name. I ask you for grace right now, Holy Spirit. Grace, 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 grace. Lord, do what only you can do. Those fears, those, those concerns about the future. Maybe there's somebody in here, you, you know that to follow the Lord is going to cost you and you're not sure 
how that's going to work out, my friend, I just pray that the peace of God, the comfort of the Holy Spirit would fill your heart right now. That you would have faith, that you have, would have confidence in Him, the likes of which you've never known. To do whatever it takes to get out of the boat, to leave those nets, and to begin to follow Him like the disciples did when Jesus called. Come on, just in your own words, right now before the Lord, just begin to surrender. every person in this room I want you to come stand in this altar area for a closing prayer I want every person 100% there's something significant about the altar I never want to abandon the altar because it's there the sacrifice is made it's there the commitment is firmed up it's there the flesh and the, the old us gets on the altar and we consecrate ourselves the revival that God has sent to us and continues to send to us is about reaching this world, denying self, taking up our cross. That's why I have that old rugged cross over here to my left, your right, because I want to be reminded. But I want us to lift our hands and I want us to dedicate. Tell us a powerful word this morning on a Monday morning. Amen. Fresh commitment, fresh dedication, consecration. God's purpose being worked out and lived through our life. Come on, everybody. Come on. Come on. Come on, just lift up your voices. Commitment.
I'm going to ask Brother Kalinda and all of his evangelists to walk around and to just lay hands on everyone. In a closing, I told him this morning, I said, this is going to be the icing on the cake for the weekend. Everybody that came out on a monsoon Monday morning, I believe are going to be encountered by God doing something significant. This day is marked. But we want a fresh anointing. I preached about the double portion, but I told the people yesterday morning in the early service, you get what you pray for and what you ask for. Elisha wanted a double portion, so he did double the miracles uh, that Elijah did. I said yesterday morning, we want an exceeding abundant portion. I don't want to just limit it to a double. And I want these men to just walk among you and lay hands on you. It doesn't have to be a lengthy prayer, but I believe there's going to be an exceeding abundant something that's going to be introduced into our life. Amen. Amen. Declared over our life this morning. Come on, I want you to just receive it. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Feel the atmosphere. 